Hello and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. If you are a subscriber to the show and you're hearing this episode around the time of its release, you may be wondering what happened to the brief history of the Nightmare on Elm Street episode that I promised last week. It's still going to be released next. But while I was working on that episode and mapping out the remaining episodes for 2022, I couldn't stop thinking about a recent post I saw on Twitter asking for help for filmmaker Amos Poe, who was recently diagnosed with a rare aggressive cancer that has left him too weak to continue working. I wanted to do more than just donate to the GoFundMe page set up to help him with his care. So I decided one other thing I could do was to do a quick episode to introduce you to Amos Poe, explain why he was an important part of 1970s and 1980s cinema, and hope that once you learn about the man and his work that you, too, might be willing to chip in a few dollars to help him live the best life possible for the remainder of his time on this plane of consciousness. I've actually been considering a small series about the lesser-known New York City filmmakers that came up in the 1980s and the films that they were making, like Alan Moyle and his film Times Square with Trini Alborado and Tim Curry. But now that I know what's happening with Amos Poe, I wanted to get to him right now. Born in Tel Aviv in 1949, Amos Poe would become one of the main figures of the no-wave cinema movement which grew out of the bustling East Village music and art scene a creative cinematic feast which paralleled the punk music explosion happening at the same time. No Way filmmakers employed a stripped-down style of guerrilla filmmaking which emphasized dark and edgy mood and unrehearsed mediacy above many other artistic concerns. Along with Poe, No Way filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch, Abel Ferreira, Lizzie Borden, Beth B., Sarah Driver, Susan Seidelman, and Charlie Ahern amongst others, would embrace B-movie genres, the avant-garde, and the French New Wave to create a fresh, vibrant American cinematic art. In fact, of all of the filmmakers who would come out of the no-wave cinema movement, it would be Amos Poe, who would be considered by many film historians and filmmakers of the day to be the father of modern American independent cinema, the John Cassavetes of his time. Post first feature film, The Blank Generation, named after punk icon Richard Hell's seminal song, would capture such musical artists as Blondie, The Ramones, Patti Smith, Talking Heads, and television before they broke into the mainstream. Not only is the filmmaking and the music as raw as punk should be, the film is also an amazing encapsulation of mid-70s New York City and clubs like The Bottom Line, CBGB's, and Max's Kansas City that someone like me would never get the chance to visit in its heyday. To say the film wasn't released so much as escaped would be an appropriate turn of phrase. After having its premiere at CBGB's in 1976, the film would play mostly midnight shows in college towns. It would never become a hit film in any sense of the word, and today, the film can be rather hard to find. And should you find it, viewing it could be maddening, because filming was done with mostly 16mm cameras without sound and the sounds used were from cassettes and other recording devices that weren't always in sync with what was being seen on screen. It can be discombobulating for some viewers. Poe has claimed that not trying to sync sound in picture was a deliberate artistic choice. 
Shortly after completing the blank generation, Poe would start to make his first dramatic narrative, Unmade Beds, an homage to the French New Wave in general and Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless specifically. Duncan Hanna plays Rico, a photographer in New York City, who was also living in Paris during the late 1950s. In Paris, Rico thinks he's a gangster and he uses his 16mm camera like a gun, which he loads with quote-unquote bullets of film in order to capture a reality that complements his fantasy. When Rico falls in love with Blondie, played by the late singer Blondie Deborah Harry, his worlds start to fall apart. Like the blank generation, it wouldn't get much of a release in 1978 and remains pretty much a curiosity for Deborah Harry fans. Duncan Hanna and Deborah Harry would also appear in small roles in Poe's next movie, The Foreigner. Fellow no-wave filmmaker Eric Mitchell stars as Max Menace, a secret agent from Europe, who becomes involved with a number of oddball, only-in-New-York characters while he awaits word of his next assignment, which never actually comes. Made for only $5,000, The Foreigner would be the no-wave film equivalent of the debut album by the Ramones in 1976. Not a lot of people experienced it at the time, but it seems everyone who did decided that that's what they wanted to do. As he was completing editing on The Foreigner, Poe would start directing a New York City public access cable channel show called Glenn O'Brien's TV Party. O'Brien was the first editor for Andy Warhol's Interview magazine in the early 1970s and was a music critic for the magazine when punk rock broke into the mainstream. O'Brien would end up befriending many of the emerging musical artists who would gladly and regularly appear on his show. Chris Stein, the guitarist and co-founder of Blondie, was O'Brien's regular co-host, and for the four years the show ran, one could regularly see acts like Blondie, The Clash, Klaus Nomi and David Byrne from Talking Heads performing songs they were still working on before they would release them publicly. You can find a number of clips from the show on YouTube, and if you're a fan of the first wave punk and new wave bands, it'll be a rabbit hole you will gladly fall down. In 1979, Poe started working on his next film, Subway Riders. Like many of the no wave films of the day, Subway Riders would feature John Lurie, Cookie Mulder, Susan Tyrell, and Amos Poe himself. His first film in color, what makes Subway Riders an important milestone, is its being the film debut of Robbie Coltrane, the great British actor who passed away recently. He would make other films like Flash Gordon that would get released first, but it was Amos Poe who gave the actor, best known as Hagrid from the Harry Potter movies, his first break in the film industry. At the start of the film, Poe's character is seen rejecting an offer to sell a script of his to a Hollywood studio. Uh, By the way, that tidbit will be ironically important in a little bit. Poe's character is a schizophrenic saxophone player who, after playing his horn on various subway lines, lures some characters to deserted spots in the city with his music only to shoot them down. Oh, and from time to time, John Lurie becomes a saxophonist. It's a little complicated to explain. Coltrane plays the New York City police detective trying to solve the bizarre series of murders. Highly stylistic with heavy color tinting of the images in deep reds and cold blues to highlight the mood of specific characters at that moment in the film, Subway Riders would again hardly be seen outside of the Big Apple when it was released in 1981, 
but it would serve as his calling card for his first step out of his no-wave comfort zone. Originally titled New York Avenue D, Alphabet City would be Amos Bo's first movie to be shot in 35mm film. It would be his first movie produced by a distributor, in this case Atlantic Releasing. It would be his first film with recognizable name actors. And it would be his first film that he would be hired to make for someone else. Vincent Spano, who had already starred in John Sayles' Baby It's You in 1983, would be cast as Johnny, a working-class Italian-American from the neighborhood in the Lower East Side of Manhattan where the film takes its name from. Working for the mob, Johnny runs the organized crime operation and rackets in his neighborhood, including drug dealing, collection of protection money, debts and street taxes, and kickups from the other local gangsters. And Johnny is only 19 years old. We follow Johnny over the course of one evening in his line of work. With his friend Libby, one of his coke dealers, Johnny plans the arson of a local tenement building, but there's one slight problem. The building he is expected to torch is his childhood home, and his mom and sister still live there. So Johnny has to decide, is he going to burn the building down and risk the lives of his mother and sister, or is he going to break off from the mob? who is holding his girlfriend and their newborn child as insurance to make sure that he completes the job. The great Michael Winslow plays Libby, while Jamie Gertz plays Johnny's sister, and Kate Vernon, the daughter of Animal House's Dean Warmer, John Vernon, makes her film debut as Johnny's girlfriend. Alphabet City would begin production in and around the titular neighborhood on October 10, 1983, for three weeks of mostly night shooting. For Spano, it was cool not only to be the lead on which the movie was built around, but also for the car that Poe was able to get to be Johnny's Wheels, a 1983 Pontiac Trans Am 25th Anniversary Daytona 500 edition, of which only 2,500 were ever made. One thing Poe wasn't happy about at the time was the producer's choice of Kyle Rogers to create the music for the movie. Rogers, then, as now, was the legendary guitarist, composer, and producer, who had created a number of the greatest songs of the 1970s and 1980s, first with his band Chic, and then for artists like the B-52s, David Bowie, Duran Duran, and Madonna. Rogers had actually been hired to score the film before Poe was hired to rewrite the script and direct it, and Rogers's disco and Funk tinge score bothered Poe for many years, although he would admit years later that it did work for the film. By 1984, Atlantic Releasing had been in the film industry for a decade, having released nearly 50 films, but they would not achieve anything resembling a hit film until 1983 when they would release Martha Coolidge's Valley Girl featuring Nicolas Cage in his first major role, into theaters. 1984 would be a very good year for Atlantic releasing, their best to date, with films like Michael Radford's timely version of George R. Wells' 1984 and the Tom Eberhardt zombie sci-fi horror comedy Night of the Comet. Opening in 321 screens, Alphabet City would gross $1.17 million in its first weekend, putting it in 12th place on the box office charts. It would be the lowest of the five new openers that weekend in terms of actual gross, but second only to Canon Films' breaking 
in per screen average. It would actually do better per screen than fellow first week opener 16 candles. But also to be fair, the vast majority of that $1.17 million gross came from the movie's hometown audience. Although its 73 theaters would only represent 22.7% of houses playing the film, its 618,000 worth of ticket sales would represent 53% of the overall box office score. In its second weekend of release, the film would lose 10% of its first week theaters and 43% of its ticket sales, finishing with just $667,000. These weren't necessarily bad numbers, but for some reason, Atlantic didn't report third weekend grosses. But they would report the fourth weekend grosses, which happened to be Memorial Day weekend, one of the busiest weekends of the year. It seemed everyone was going to the movies that weekend. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would set a new first weekend record with a $42.3 million gross over the four-day holiday weekend. And numbers were vastly up for practically every movie in theaters that weekend, including Alphabet City, which would gross $1.26 million from 313 screens. And then Atlantic stopped reporting on the film, giving a final gross of $7.04 million it would be the highlight of Amos Poe's directing career. It would also be the last Amos Poe movie of the decade, but it wasn't for lack of trying. While he worked on a number of screenplays, several of which would be sold to the likes of Columbia Pictures, 20th Century Fox, and The Weintraub Company, Poe would hire himself out as a director for music videos. He didn't care who he worked for, being equally at ease with Animotion, Anthrax, Bob Dylan, New Order, Juice Newton, or Run DMC. In 1986, it looked like Poe would finally get the break of a lifetime. David Putnam, the Oscar-winning producer of Chariots of Fire, had been hired as the president of Columbia Pictures in the fall of 1986. I'm not going to go into too much detail into Putnam's time at Columbia here because I did a four-part series about Putnam's time at Columbia two years ago. And it's still, to this date, the crowning glory of this podcast. Well worth a listen if you're into the -the behind-the-scenes machinations of a major studio. Poe had written a screenplay called Rocket Gibraltar, about a retired Hollywood screenwriter who brings his entire family together to his estate on Long Island for his 77th birthday. Poe had come up with the title in 1980, knowing that one day he would write a screenplay using it as a title, even if he didn't know at the time what the movie would be about. That would come to him in 1985 while on vacation in the Hamptons. The script would come together pretty quickly, and Putnam was willing to give the cult director $3 million to make his mark on the big leagues. And Poe would assemble an enviable cast for his movie, getting Burt Lancaster to play the family patriarch, Susie Amos, Patricia Clarkson, Francis Conroy, and John Glover as his children, and Sinead Kuzak, Bill Pullman, and Kevin Spacey as their spouses. During the celebrations, the writer's health begins to fail, and he informs his family that it's his wish to be sent off to the next realm via a Viking funeral. His kids are caught up in their own drama, so it'll be up to the writer's grandchildren played by Macaulay Culkin and Sarah Rue in their film debuts, to carry out the old man's wishes. 
Production on Rocket Gibraltar would begin on August 4, 1987. But after three weeks of shooting, Putnam would dismiss Poe from the production. At the time, it was chalked up to the old standby, quote-unquote, creative differences. But at the time of the film's release in September 1988, it would be revealed that Poe had gone too far over budget, with less than half the film shot. Lancaster would suggest director Daniel Petrie to take over the film, as the pair had almost worked together a couple years earlier on a project that ended up being canceled due to financing difficulties. Petrie would pick up shooting on September 1st and have the film completed, on time and on budget, at the end of the month. However, the film would never get a proper release in theaters for reasons far outside of Amos Poe's control. While Petrie was shooting the film in Poe's place, Putnam was either fired or quit from his post at Columbia Pictures, and many of the smaller films greenlit by Putnam, like Rocket Gibraltar, would be given token theatrical releases with very little advertising support. The film would never play in more than 12 theaters, and it would only gross $187,349 after five weeks. As the 80s became the 90s, Poe would continue to support himself mainly as a screenwriter, selling several scripts to major studios, while another script, La Pacifica, would be turned into a graphic novel by DC Comics. He would direct three movies in the 1990s. 1992's Triple Bogey on a Par 5 Hole features Robbie Coltrane and Philip Seymour Hoffman. 1995's Dead Weekend stars Stephen Baldwin and Bai Ling, and 1998's Frog for Snakes, which had a cast that included Robbie Coltrane again, Harry Hamlin, Barbara Hershey, Debbie Mazar, Ron Perlman, and Justin Thoreau. Triple Bogey would go direct-to-video, Dead Weekend would premiere on Showtime, and Frogs for Snakes would get an actual theatrical release from Artisan Entertainment, but it would disappear after two weeks, playing in one theater each in Los Angeles and New York earning $20,639. It would be another eight years after Frogs for Snakes before Poe would make Empire II, a three-hour rumination on life in Manhattan, and the filmmaker's interpretation of Andy Warhol's landmark 1965 art film Empire. Although there would be a documentary about the country seeing our Steve Earle in there too, and his final film to date, 2012's A Walk in the Park, is a not-quite-documentary, not-quite-a-dramatic narrative that mixes addiction, ambition, depression, family relations, retribution, truth, and violence and poetry into a fugue state of a wormhole logic. Avis Poe will be leaving us with quite a legacy of cinematic art, and hopefully he's not done yet. This is where we come in. Amos Poe has stage 4 colon cancer. And even though he teaches at NYU Film School, the insurance and coverage required to treat this kind of advanced cancer far outweighs the coverage he gets from the school. And being an outsider and iconoclast, he doesn't have Spielbergian money to fight back. If you go to this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, we'll include a link to the GoFundMe fundraiser that has been set up to help Amos. As I write and record this on Tuesday, October 25th, 2022, they've already raised $146,350 of their $150,000 goal. One organization, the Writer Road Foundation, 
founded by photographer Richard Prince, has donated $50,000 to help Amos, while more than 550 others have also contributed what they can. The GoFundMe page has been keeping everyone up to date on what's been going on, and just a few hours ago as I write this, they believe they've found the best doctor and hospital for Amos's treatment. So if you're a fan of underground cinema, of pop art, or of independent cinema in the 1980s, Amos Poe is your friend, and he needs your help. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in a couple days when Episode 90 of Brief History of the Nightmare on Elm Street series is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about Amos Poe and his movies we covered on this episode, as well as a link to the GoFundMe page where you can make a donation to help this iconic filmmaker in his time of need. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. <laughs>